Hello, we are in the second episode of Loga, a podcast exploring how we see the world through language, Loga, and culture, having conversations with individuals navigating movement, our natural flow, as humans, how culture and language intersect, evolve, connect, or divide us. Today with us, Kalita Spence. She's a mother, a daughter, a poet, a human. Um, so let's start with your childhood, Kalita. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1982 uh, by two Caribbean parents, uh, both biracial. They were both uh, Cuban and Jamaican. And they were both uh, here. They both came here to America to kind of have a better life. Uh, they were both from decent families, and uh, that's pretty much it. I am the, I am the fifth of, of six children. So I have four older brothers. Then there came me, the first girl, and um, that's that's pretty much it. I'm not sure what else you'd like to know. <laughs> um, were you like were you guys the first generation in America? Yes, I'm first generation American. Um, I remember, uh, like growing up as a kid, we we never ate fast food. We we just ate like very Caribbean foods. There was only Patois spoken at home, and we were very indoctrinated in Caribbean culture and in the standards of of what we needed to do um, in school and just who we needed to be when we grow grew up. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. did you did you have a moment when you realized, oh, why my household is different than other kids? Do you have that? Moment? Yeah, I think I had that moment in what grade was I? Second grade. I went to a school that was PS three twelve, and most of my uh, most of the kids that went to school with me, they were Caucasian, and uh, they were into New Kids on the Block, and my family, we didn't have MTV and we didn't, we weren't into that type of music. At the time I, I grew up on mostly Caribbean and soul music. Um, so I remember, you know, the girls in the class talking about who they thought was the cutest and uh, what they were really into. And I remember just being completely like disconnected from it. I remember um, asking my mom for a shirt and she did the best she could. She went out and bought me a new kids on the block shirt. But I remember then feeling like, okay, this is different. Or the fact that I had rice and peas for dinner with stewed chicken and, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. whereas other, other families had like sloppy Joe's, which is like a very American thing or like fried chicken or something like that. And I was just like, no, we're having curry goat with white rice tonight. <laughs> That's my favorite curry goat with white rice or some oxtail. So as a child growing up, I, I remember my favorite meals weren't necessarily the meals that my friends uh, really had, or I had this really good friend, Ralph, um, and he came from a Jewish family background. And I remember he used to have like pasta every day, which is olive oil. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know about that. Like, you know, it wasn't my favorite meal. Um, I, at the time we hadn't really even had pasta a lot. We just like stuck to vegetables, rice, and, you know, meats being like 
oxtail curry goat steak or chicken um so i think that's the largest way that i realized okay we're not the same but also culturally like we didn't wear our shoes in the house um we took our shoes off when we came home i don't know if that's a jamaican thing or what but i know other friends who they wore their outside shoes in the house and they weren't asked to take them off um Mm -hmm. another thing too was um you know just the respect level that you have for your family and your parents and just any adult, um, you know, as a child, we, we had to say please and thank you. We had to look adults in the eye. We had to really, really be very respectful. And in Jamaica, children are seen and not heard. And, and growing up with that, like I was always told like, hey, she's very quiet. She's very to herself. Like, especially when I was in um, elementary school, like that's what I always got. I always got, oh, she's incredibly smart, but like, she's so quiet all the time. Does she talk? There was um, a parent teacher conference where my Mm -hmm. teacher actually (laughs) asked my mom if I spoke and she was just like, yes. (laughs) And I was just like, and then I started speaking to her. Um, But like, I, I think that those are the major things that separated me, um, culturally from from um and and that made me know hey i am in america and my family is not the same as a average american family one one cool trait too is my family was very big on homework and grades and mm-hmm. having to always um get high grades that was something that they valued a lot and for me, I was moved from, I remember we grew up in East Flatbush and at the mm-hmm. time they had something called a magnet program. And I'm not sure how it worked, but they used to bus us from the neighborhood we lived in in East Flatbush to the school that I'm telling you about, PS312, which was in Old Mill Basin, which was a predominantly white neighborhood and mm-hmm. a neighborhood um, that, that was affluent at the time. So being bused from from my neighborhood to that neighborhood, there was definite cultural differences mm-hmm. as well. I remember, um, I remember, I was only friends with like the kids who who lived close to me, even though we were placed in this new environment because um, our grades were advanced. Um, we were still like kind of segregated you know what I mean and it was mostly Caribbean families who lived near me um and then the families that we were being the school families that we were being integrated into were mostly um Jewish American families Mm. so you know and I remember seeing kids leave for religion because um sometimes kids would get picked up early from class because they were going to religion and I remember seeing them leave and being like well, I want to do religion too. Like, how do you get, <laughs> how do you get that class? Miles, stop taking off your elbow pads. <laughs> I was like, how do you get that class? I want to do that class too. Yeah. Um, and you, uh, you had to code switch going from. Oh, yes. I, yeah. I feel like my childhood prepared me for my adulthood, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, I, often have to code switch um 
And it's not, part of it makes me feel like I'm being fake. Like, oh my gosh, I'm talking this way. But it's not like that. Like some people may even think of code switching as being something fake, but it's not like that. It's so natural and it comes so naturally. Like when I'm around Caribbean friends and family, um, it, it naturally comes out. We talk about culturally how our parents raised us, culturally what foods we ate. We talk about everything and it just naturally comes out in in conversation and what our parents found acceptable and what they didn't find acceptable you know mm -hmm. um and then i think uh when i'm around um very american friends um it's it's almost like three different codes i have my black american friends my white american friends and my caribbean friends right mm -hmm. i never thought and, of like that Three group yeah to be honest with you that's what it is like my my black american friends like we all went to high school together we grew up listening to like hip-hop music and we have that black culture but then you have my my caribbean american friends where we had that black culture but we also had heavy ingrained like strict parents who didn't let us go out and who didn't let us do what some of our friends did because they had high standards where we had to get into a good college we had to get good grades like there was so much pressure I remember um being in high school and I had a friend who got like a 90 on on something in science class and she was supposed to get a hundred and she was so upset about it and most of my um Caribbean friends in high school, they were honor students because Caribbean pr parents pride themselves on not being like, you know, and I'm using a not derogatory term, but this is what parents say, and I would never say this, but they would say, oh, we don't want you to be like these Yankee parents. Like, that's what they call Americans, these Yankees. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason why they say that is because a lot of, um, from their perspective, not from my own, a lot of um, American families are, are lax and they are not involved in their children's education and they're not involved in the progress. Um, from my perspective, I don't believe that I've seen very affluent American families, but that was the notion that we were raised with where Caribbean Americans have a harder working mentality and we push harder. And when they see you, you represent your family and you represent this culture and you don't embarrass us. Um, mm -hmm. So especially coming from a Jamaican background, um, that was something that my mom often ingrained. She often ingrained um, if we, if we even, she talked about often too as well, who we're going to marry and the type of person we bring home. Where, oh, I'm thinking now, I think like coming from a collective culture is like your grade is my grade. Who you marry is what I marry. You know, yeah, like yeah. every small decision, everybody's decision. Yeah, I remember not even, I've only brought two guys home in my life and I, I've brought home uh, my, my first boyfriend and Francois and I've only uh, dated two people in my life because that indoctrination, that mentality, um, you know, whether I like it or not, it was rubbed off on me. And, and that's what I thought about when I thought about who I'm going to date. I thought about how my family would accept them, mm -hmm. how my brothers would, would, would incorporate them in our lifestyles. But I also thought about how they would fit in my Black 
culture or my Caribbean culture or my, my, my white friends, you know what I mean? Cause at the same time as well, like, because I grew up um, in East Flatbush, but went to school in a white neighborhood, um, oftentimes I would have to code switch and, mm-hmm. and my Caucasian friends, like I'd need, like essentially when I got older, I'd need a partner who could fit in all three aspects. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unbeknownst to me, those were the major things I thought about. It wasn't just about love. It was also at the end of the day, okay, I love this person, but do they fit in my life? So those were the other pressures I think put on us as being first generation Americans. Um, you know, and all my brothers, um, they are all business owners. Caribbeans are really big at owning real estate. Um, I remember when I went to college, my brother, Nate, he sat me down and he was just like, okay, you're going to college in Rhode Island. So we're going to have to buy a house. Like, and I was 20, I was 21 years old. And I was like, but I'm pretty sure like people live on campus. Like, you know. And he was just like, no, we're going to, um, we're going to look at houses. Like you should get in touch with a real estate agent. And, and that's what I did. My first house wasn't perfect. I wasn't in love with it, but I bought my first house at like 21, 22 years old. And, and, um, you know, uh, it was a duplex in Providence, Rhode Island. And we, I rented it out to my friend from high school who had lived in Rhode Island as well. And then I rented it out to a bunch of other Long Island people um, whose, whose parents essentially paid uh, their rent for them because they were in college as well. Mm-hmm. So there were about um, three college students that I also rented it out to as I paid a portion of the rent as well. But I, I speak to people who are just American uh born and raised and they're like no it's not normal <laughs> and I'm just like I didn't I didn't know that wasn't normal you know what I mean I didn't know it wasn't normal like uh, my family was just big on like because uh, my mom was a single mom and she worked hard to put her way through college and to become a nurse um, you know we all chipped in except for me because I was only like nine or 10 at the time when we moved to Long Island. But I remember my brothers all working hard, whatever jobs they had and chipping in for my mom to buy her first house. And we all always chipped in. That was just the mentality of how we were raised in um, a first generation American family. Even the fact that my sister currently lives with me in my house and we just have like that chipping in mentality where it's just kind of like, why would you rent an apartment when you could have your own apartment in a family member's house? So I think just the foundations that were laid, even from when I was a child until now, Mm -hmm. um, has always been, you want to be financially independent. You want to make sure that people know that you are Caribbean American and you're different from other um, black Americans, I've raised you differently. You have How are you feel about that? Do you feel people just want to <sighs> to feel like we're different, we're better? Or- I think that I think that for Jamaicans, that's a big thing. Um, for me personally, it took me it took me not too long to kind of debunk that indoctrination because I growing up in in a, a 
predominantly black area of Long Island, most of my friends, their parents were affluent and a lot of them went to college. Mm -hmm. And I would say 75% of them, um, their families were from Caribbean backgrounds too. So they had that same mentality. But for the ones that didn't have families from Caribbean backgrounds, like, you know, it kind of debunked that myth. But I think that oftentimes, and that comes with European colonialism, mm -hmm. Black families want to say, okay, we're better because we are from Jamaica. We're better because we're from Trinidad. We're better because we are from Atlanta. And that's the Black Mecca. <laughs> like, yeah. But really, in all actuality, we're all just African Americans at the end of the day. And I think um, for my mom and my dad, who are Caribbean Americans, when they hear me call myself an African American or they hear me um, connect myself to some type of African culture, they're taken back and surprised by that because in, in Jamaica, they're so indoctrinated about, I'm not African, I'm Jamaican, I'm not this, I'm that. Like they have so much pride on being Jamaican that it's hard for them to accept that we have other cultural roots. It didn't just start and end with Jamaica. So duality, right? I think as a culture, we struggle with duality. You can't be this and that. You know, you have, yeah, you have to yeah. box the individual into one thing. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's definitely it. But um, I don't even think that I've ever really sat down and seen the process that I've gone through as a first generation American um, until um, actually speaking with you right now and thinking of little nuances that happen. Mm -hmm. Or like even the way that I had dinner on the table every time I came home, even though I had a single mom who worked nights. Like I came home and it wasn't even a question in my mind. There was always like some stewed chicken and rice and peas or stewed chicken and white rice with some cabbage on the side or broccoli on the side. And um, like there was always some type of hot meal at home. And when I speak to like some of my other friends, they're like, no, that wasn't a consistent thing in my life. You had like a good home. And, and the assumption I think people make as well is that because I came from a single parent home that things were rough or hard or, you know, crazy. But no, my brothers chipped in and did what they had to do. We all chipped in and did whatever we had to do um, in order to, to move forward. And you see it in our lives today, you know? Yeah. How now since your children you know, are biracial, how you're, do you feel like, how, what do you think they identify with? I mean, there's oh my the gosh. young, this is, <laughs> this is such a great question because, um, it, it's a great question because even though my children are bi biracial or I'd say multicultural, my husband's from mm -hmm. France and he said race is something they only ascertain to dogs and animals. So, he strongly doesn't believe in that term. That's an American term, biracial. So my, my, my kids are multicultural. My, my husband's French and Italian and his dad grew up in North Africa and Tunisia. So he comes from family roots that have been multicultural, that have been all over the world. Even my brother-in-law, uh, who's his brother is married to a woman from India and they live in Australia right now with their two kids, you know? so embedded in his family is a culture of, of diversity. That being said, 
um, my husband, when my oldest son came to him and said, I'm white because kids keep calling me white. Mm. And, you know, he goes to a predominantly, not predominantly white school, but I'd say it's like 75% white, his school. And when black kids look at him, they see him as white because of his fair skin. And when, um, when white kids look at him, they, they, they see him as white, but they kind of do a side look because of his curly hair. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we had to actually recently sit my son down and go, okay, you're not white. (laughs) Okay, you're not black. Like, you're just multicultural. And when these people ask you what you are or ask you your nationality, you're not going to say white or black. You're going to say, I'm Cuban, Jamaican, Italian, and French. You know what I mean? And that's a lot to ask of an eight-year-old to understand that concept. But unfortunately... You know, we're a complex we're not one yeah. thing and I think that I think yeah. right thing in that way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot to ask of an eight-year-old. It was a sad conversation to ask, but it was a sad conversation to have because at eight, he's already been lumped into the category of being mm. white just because he's fair-skinned. So my husband and I, we were saddened by it. Whereas my younger son, he has more of an olive skin color. He looks more Hispanic or... Um, Indian or even associated with black so people associate him with black culture automatically and they don't realize like they in schools teachers people treat black children differently than they treat white children and my husband even like said that he said even going to the playground with my youngest son who is a bit darker is different because you see parents white parents pull their children away when our son goes on the playground not because he's ill-behaved he was raised by the same parents as my older son but because he's a brown child and and they don't know what's gonna happen like i think that's racism i think that's crazy but the fact that it's so indoctrinated in a culture that, that by teachers, they're treated differently, um, by pl- people on the playground, they're treated differently. I think that that's crazy. But, but my oldest, he has his, his stuff too, because he's just like, I'm not white, I'm not black. You know, I'm multicultural. Like he, he goes through that and he goes through where or what group he'll identify with, you know? And then that's pretty much it. And then the the class system also comes into play too with the haves and the have-nots, but that's a whole other story. Because I think at the end of the day, my children will fall into that category. Are you middle class? Are you upper middle class? Are you, you know, are you from this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Because I think that's what happens sometimes in Brooklyn as well we're in we're in new york city so we're in one of the most segregated diverse um school systems ever you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's it gets crazy but i hope that i was clear on like my kids and them being biracial and, and their experience it's something that we're living through as parents is my answer and mm-hmm. those are key examples that i give because um my children Um, are having these real experiences that maybe I never had. And then throw in there the fact that they are first-generation Americans for my husband. He is French. He's a 
he moved here from France. <laughs> so they are first generation Americans experiencing that French culture, um, you know, and then I have my Jamaican culture embedded and we have like these high standards. And then on top of it, they have to deal with being biracial. So I try to put myself in their shoes sometimes and it's, it's, it's crazy. But I think that's also a reason why we chose a bilingual school. Mm. Um, I was we, just going to go toward that. Like, yeah, we chose a bilingual school and most of our friends are interracial couples. Like, um, not because we navigate because of the, towards that, but we know the struggle. <laughs> we know each other's struggles. So like, I think, just off the bat when when interracial parents see other interracial parents they're like hey how you doing <laughs> and we just gravitate towards each other because because we understand um just how hard it can be raising children in a country that really puts emphasis on race and i haven't grown up in any other country so that's not my judgment coming forth but I know that I've gone to other countries, like um, one country that I think has gotten a bad rap, but I had a great experience there is Italy. I went to Imprimetta, Italy, and I stayed there for about a month and a half, two months. And it was beautiful. No one made me feel, because racism is a feeling. You can feel the energy. You can feel when someone's racist. No one made me feel like I wasn't a part, like they were r racially targeting me they just treated me like a human and they just treated me like you know like even even when I go into stores sometimes it doesn't matter um the accolades that I have how many master's degrees I have or who I am um when it comes to to class right when I go into a store in America no matter what I feel that pressure on me, like, oh, she's a black woman. What type of black woman is she? Is she going to steal something? Is she going to buy something? And I feel pressure on me and it's not a subconscious thing. Sometimes it is a real thing, but maybe sometimes it's a subconscious thing because of my experience uh, as being a black woman in America. But at the end of the day, going back to Italy, I didn't feel that pressure to buy something because if I don't, they're gonna stereotype me. I didn't feel that pressure to, to do anything. I could just be myself. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that being here in American culture, it's difficult. Um, I remember my husband and my, my two children and I, we went camping in West Virginia and we went into a Walmart and all of these white families were just staring at us. And Francois being very naive, he said, what are they staring at? Like, did we do something? And I said, no, it's because I'm black and you're white and we're an interracial couple. And they didn't stare at us in a good way where it's like, oh, they're so cute. They stared at us in a way like, what is he doing? Like, you know what I mean? Why would he do that? Um, we even have neighbors, like if I'm gonna be transparent where um, anytime they, they have a conversation to make, they only talk to Francois. They really talk to me and I almost have to butt myself into it. Wow. <laughs> and it's not like, it's not like Francois owns the house and I don't own the house too. We own the house together. <laughs> like mm -hmm. we both worked hard to attain whatever we need to attain. And what neighborhood do you live in? I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Um, you know, so it, it's just 
we even have neighbors, um, sometimes our, our Caucasian neighbors that don't talk to me, but they'll have these very long conversations with Francois. And then if I show up, the conversation stops. <laughs> like, it's almost like they don't know how to interact with um, someone who's another race or culture. Um, and it's sad, you know, but I'm, I'm going to be here and I'm going to keep being the representation for a whole culture. Not saying that that's right, but that's what I'm going to be, um, you know, <laughs> and, and hopefully they'll see one day that I'm just a human being but yeah that's it. back to the languages what what languages are your kids what languages you are speaking at home and how are you guys navigating this two languages two different dialects at home and how what is your kids are preserving so that's a difficult um conversation because okay so a lot of people um, with French backgrounds, they always ask us, hey, are you speaking French to your children? Do your children speak French? And um, we teach our children French. My husband teaches the, the kids French, but they spend a majority of time with their mother, me, and I speak English. And, you know, I, I do have some, some Spanish uh, dialect, but I predominantly speak English. And a lot of times when we see children who are bilingual or dual lingual, it's because their mom, the person that they're with the most or the person they're with the most, mm -hmm. uh, their primary, I wouldn't say primary caregiver because my husband is here. He's present. He's primary. But I'd say that I'm the one who's the nurturer. I'm the one who was breastfeeding. I'm the one who was with them when they started walking and all that stuff. So I, I spoke my native language, which is English, you know? Mm -hmm. So the first words that they spoke was in English. But as I spoke to other interracial French couples, I began to see a pattern. If the dad was French and the mom was not French, then I would see that the child was predominantly English-speaking um, I, most of the couples I know are heterosexual couples. So I don't mean that in a, you know, in a way where it's like me being a bigot, but it's just my experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but you know, if, and, and vice versa, if the mom was French and the dad spoke English, the kids spoke French. Mm -hmm. So it was just predominantly who the, the kids were with and who that primary caregiver was and that's the language that they spoke. And since my husband for, for most of their childhood was a flight attendant and he flew and he was home with them, um, you know, part of that time, I think also, and because their babysitters or their schools spoke English, they, they spoke English as their first language. But we do go to France. We even with the time of coronavirus got a chance to go to France this year. We do go to France um, to two times a year and we spend a few weeks there with my husband's mom who doesn't speak English and the kids uh, FaceTime with her almost every day. And, you know, they have French culture embedded. They go to a dual language school. Mm -hmm. um, so we're trying our best to push that on them. But I remember growing, uh, raising Mateo and him at two years old going, I'm not speaking French anymore. <laughs> And he didn't want to do it. And the same with Luca. Um, you know, at three, Luca was just like, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> no. I feel you know like what I mean? being here, like, it strips you away from your language. I don't know, the whole system. 
doesn't appreciate yeah. what you bring. And if yeah. those kids feel that from a young age, like English is power, power and what, whatever other language we speak is secondary. Yeah. It's not power. Yeah. And I think they felt that as well because most of their friends at school spoke English. I, I almost wonder if we would have put them in bilingual speaking school from even uh, uh, daycare or Do you have a child care. We didn't have a choice at the time. We lived in Long Island that, um, you know, for us being like either middle class or upper middle class, we didn't have the options of schools that spoke French. Mm-hmm. And and my school, my child's daycare wasn't cheap. I mean, we paid 1600 a month for a Montessori school, but yet still French wasn't offered. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we had the cheapest daycare. We had a pretty... Uh, expensive one or one that was average price for Long Island Um, but I would say that it it wasn't it didn't have the culture that Brooklyn had which is part of the reason why we came back to Brooklyn and and I don't know who's going to hear this podcast and think hey don't you dug out Long Island I'm not my whole family still lives out on the island um, but I'm saying it didn't have what we needed as a interracial family to, to have our kids have access to French culture, we needed to come back to, to Brooklyn. And my kids go to a bilingual French school in Park Slope, and most of the people around them are bilingual French families. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, dual language families. So that's something that we needed for our family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, back home, like, every school is a bilingual school, if, especially if, if it's a private school. Even wow, that's great. School, even the government school, we start English really early on. And I think that's the that's great. in America is we should at least start English. I think every school in America should be English and Spanish. Yeah. Dual yeah. language. Um, just yeah. embrace, making people feel like, oh, they're, what they're bringing and their identity and their language is um, it, it's important. It's valuable. It's valuable. Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think that's part of the reason why my kids have missed out on, you know, they'll, they'll hear my husband speak in French and they'll respond in English and he hates that. And we're trying to get them out of that. And they're still young enough where we can, they're eight and five. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because of culturally what's been embedded and ingrained since the time my oldest was two and he came home and said no more French (laughs) yeah I think culturally what was embedded was speak English English is better and I don't know if he came home from daycare saying that because a teacher said that to him or or what I don't think so I'd like to think not but we we don't know why he came with that change of heart and and that makes it difficult to teach our children another language in this culture Mm-hmm. No, because they can't bring their whole self to school. They can't bring their whole self to. Yeah, to work, I would like workplaces. You know. Yeah, it was hard enough for me growing up as a first generation Caribbean American, and I can't imagine for my kids because they're first generation. Like, they're my husband is French. Like, he's has a thick French accent, fully French. He's been in America twelve years. You know what I mean? Um, It must be very difficult for them to be like, oh my gosh, like my dad, he won't understand this. Like he has very French beliefs when it comes to certain things. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I've been in your house and you're you're like the 
perfect combination of Caribbean and French. Yeah. <laughs> You're making Simas on the side and Francois like making the spaghetti with with jam. <laughs> and the music, like you would put some Caribbean music and Francois in the living room playing like the piano. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like my kids know plantains and Caribbean breakfast and they also know like you know croissants like my son is the pickiest croissant eater like <laughs> he will not have a starbucks croissant he he needs it to be soft and buttery and and freshly made like you know what i mean and he's eight he's eight years old <laughs> you know what i mean he knows the real deal you know so but like he also will have like uh caribbean breakfasts like fried dumplings aki and saltfish like which is one of my favorite and like he'll be okay with that my kids are not a bacon and eggs type you know yeah. well that's a typical like american breakfast like they are either caribbean or french breakfast like till this day they don't know that americans don't call uh uh, butter and jelly on toast, tartine. They call it tartine. They're like, good morning, mama. Can I have some tartine? Like, <laughs> I learned that from you when I said to you guys, and tartine. I was like, I'm not sure it's the fish. It sounded like fish. But then I thought no. it was a jam. No, no because my husband calls, calls it tartine. His mom calls it tartine. They spend most of their time, uh, you know, with us at home. And... Uh, <laughs> And that's pretty much it. Like, you know what I mean? So they're very, um, they have a very Caribbean French culture in our home. Um, so it, it's, it's going to be interesting. You should have this interview with them in 10 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see their perspectives because mm -hmm. they come from a mom who's a first generation American um, uh, and a dad who is um, is from France, and they are first generation Americans. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it should be interesting because not only am I a first generation American, so are my kids. Yeah, and the um, and the world yeah. is changing. You know, I'm not sure if it's for the better yeah. or for the worse. I'm still <laughs> questioning yeah. that, to be honest. Uh, but it'd be interesting how the world will see them, how they will identify. I think the world will have more interracial children in it, and that's my hope. And do you <laughs> think that will solve racism? I don't think that will solve racism. I don't know that it will solve racism, but I know here in our small house, we have knocked down so many barriers with the fact that we are an interracial couple. Like, there aren't questions of equality when Mateo and his brother stand in a room in our house. Like, Luca is, is, is brown and Mateo has white, fair skin. And Mateo sees Luca as just his brother. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right here in our own home, we have different races, but we are all equal. You know what I mean? So I think, I don't think it will solve the issue of racism, but if someone's identity is embedded in white and it's embedded in black, how could they say one is better than the other when they are both? Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's a complex relationship and i think sometimes we mm-hmm. we identify with one another other we coexist when I mean, we you know i'm saying depends on what environment that we are around yeah right i agree with that too i agree with that too and i told you like the interesting story of my my oldest son who's you know you know he went to the the interesting part is when we were in long island he went to a Caribbean, predominantly black school um, that that we chose because we we like the values and the educational values. Um, And then here in in Brooklyn, he goes to a predominantly French school, which is either a bunch of French biracial children or white children, you know? Um, So it's funny how in both schools, he was called white. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Because of the color of his skin. So in a black school, I'm being called white. In a white school, I'm being called white. I guess that I am white. And that is like his conclusion at eight years old. Whereas, no, we had to sit with him as his family and be like, hey, buddy, you know, you're a part of a very diverse culture here in America. All they see is black or white, but we are actually more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this broadcast, I would love for you to share. Like, is there a food that you can, that the food kind of remind reminds you of home? Oh, or, or what's the idea of home? What is home for Khalifa? Um, home for me is Jamaica. I know that sounds crazy because I was born and raised here in New York, mm-hmm. but I have gotten a chance to go to Jamaica and spend quite some time there. I was close to my grandmother and my aunts who came to visit often and they they would come a few months at a time uh, to, to help my mom out because she was a single mom and they would be the ones cooking and cleaning and instilling those Caribbean values in us. Um, so home for me is Jamaica because when I go to Jamaica, I'm like, yes, everybody does this. <laughs> like, you know? I belong, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everybody does this. Okay, okay, this is my culture. Um, so I feel like a puzzle piece that kind of fits in. And even mm-hmm. though I was displaced here in America, I fit in just right in Jamaica. So something that really brings me home to Jamaica is a nice warm day at the beach because um, I find that, you know, that just warm days with the smell of the, the mist in the air. Oh, and then like the mountaintops uh, burning firewood, those smells like the smell of firewood burning, the smell of salt water mist in the air, Um, the feel of some light sand. Like we have different beaches here in America, but beaches where there's like a light sand um, and the taste of ocean water on my lips, even though Mm -hmm. I haven't gone in the water. Mm -hmm. um, That is... That is so that is so beautiful to me and experiences like that bring me back to my roots and my kids actually I take them to Jamaica once a year, the same way that we go to France like twice a year. I no longer have family there because many of my family members have moved to America for a better life or to Florida, which is very close to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. But or they've passed away. My grandmother and grandfather are now gone. Um but my my kids, their favorite vacation is Jamaica. They're like, why didn't we go to Jamaica this year? <laughs> they don't really care about uh, coronavirus. Like their favorite thing to do is go there. And we 
my favorite foods, even though not great for me. And because of my diet change right now, I don't eat it anymore. But I would say like some some rice and peas or mm-hmm. oxtail with curry goat um, and some salad on the side or some some cabbage and vegetables mm-hmm. on the side. That's a typical Jamaican meal right now because I'm, I'm plant based and pescatarian my my typical Jamaican meal right now is um, some escovitch fish or some stew red snapper uh, with some vegetables or rice and peas. And just yesterday with my sister, it was a treat to myself and to her. We had some, um, some uh, Aki and saltfish. My sister doesn't eat fish. She's completely plant-based. So she had some steamed kalaloo vegetables with the rice and peas um but for me my grandmother used to have a breadfruit tree so i told you the physical aspects of jamaica and now i'm going into the food the things that remind me of jamaica my grandmother used to have a breadfruit tree on her her property and i don't know what they call it in america i think they call it jackfruit i don't know but breadfruit basically you can cut it up and and freeze it and bring it to america and every time she would come or my aunt would come to visit they would bring breadfruit or fresh aki or um coconut and stuff like that and and those are the things that bring me back to jamaica having breakfast some aki and saltfish with some fried dumplings or fried breadfruit on the side in a warm summer day or a day at the beach those things bring me back to where I feel home. And it's so funny that I grew up here in America, but I could see myself living in Jamaica. My husband and I can see ourselves living there. There are some parts that are very rough and there are some parts of the culture that we don't know, which is what holds us back from purchasing property there or full on deciding to retire there because there are things that we don't know and we can be taken advantage of. But the things culturally that I was taught even being here in America that um, keep me connected to Jamaica are those things. Yeah. Like on, like on Sundays too, they, they have fish on Sundays. Like, and it's so psalm on Sundays, even till today, because they're very Christian culture and Sundays considered a sacred day. Um, so on Sundays, it's very psalm and people eat fish on Sundays or most of the stores are closed and it's a family day. For us as a couple, even though Francois grew up in an atheist background, he, he's adopted that and he likes that. On Sundays, we're just very laid back and we don't eat fish on Sundays. That's not like necessarily what we do, but it's a laid back family day and we make sure that we spend time together as a family. So, Yeah, food, yeah. music, and people kind of take you places <laughs> and take you to memories and that yeah. small details that can make life meaningful. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So thanks, Kalitha, for spending the hour with us today. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having me. I hope I didn't, uh, you know, I think I rambled in some places. That's how I feel in my reflection on this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, have a good one. You too.